This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This show is brought to you in part by the Art of Charm podcast. Everyone, and I mean everyone, can get better at communicating and connecting with others. And doing so can significantly improve every aspect of your life. Job interviews, love and marriage, creative collaboration, all of these things depend on interpersonal skills. The Art of Charm podcast is a fun, practical, powerful, and best of all, totally free way to up your game while you're commuting to work or doing the dishes. It's fun to listen to and packed with immediately usable advice from people who know what they're talking about, including leading psychologists, Navy SEALs, management gurus, and more. So go to theartofcharm.com forward slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. And now, let's get to Think Again. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're striking out into uncharted and dangerous territory. We want to see what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on topics they may or may not have any knowledge about. We want to jump into the unknown with no script, no preparation, each week, our producers tunnel deep into Big Think's archives to find ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking. And the clips are a total surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I'm joined by neuroscientist, musician, and author Daniel Levitin. His latest book, The Organized Mind, deals with why it's so hard to pay attention to anything in our information-overloaded world and what we can do about it. Welcome to Think Again, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you first about the fear of missing something. When the media talks to young people about social media and like, why are you plugged in all the time? Why are you always tweeting? Why aren't you getting any sleep because of Twitter or whatever you're texting? Oh, come on, Twitter, that's so five years ago. Right, uh, Snapchat or whatever is next. The response is frequently, I'm afraid I'm gonna miss something, right? right and I right. wonder whether, whether information overload causes this anxiety, you know, this fear that like, in paying attention to one thing, everything else is passing us by. So uh, as a neuroscientist, I can tell you a little bit about what's going on there. The brain evolved over tens of thousands of years to help us adapt to life. It made us want to drink water when we're thirsty, and those early humans who didn't drink water when they were thirsty probably didn't live long enough to pass on that I don't like water gene, right? So one of the things that happened over evolutionary timescales was that we developed a fondness for newness. A little shot of dopamine giving us a little bit of neural reward when we encountered something new because in olden times, new things didn't happen that often. And when they did, it was a good learning opportunity. The new thing might be discovering a new stand of fruit trees or a, a new place where fish can be found, right? But now newness is coming at us almost continuously. And the brain hasn't evolved to deal with that onslaught of newness. So this dopamine stuff is very powerful. You may remember an experiment that was done in the 1950s where rats were given the opportunity to press a bar in their cage that would release dopamine in their brains. 
And what do you think they did? They pressed it repeatedly over until they and over. Died. Yes, yeah. until they died <laughs> of exhaustion, uh, over and over and over again. And if that image of rats pressing a bar over and over reminds you of somebody compulsively checking their email or their Twitter, Tumblr, Vine, Facebook, Instagram, there's a reason. It's the same chemical. All right. the every new tweet, every new thumbs up, it stimulates our dopaminergic system, telling us there's something new, and it becomes a real addiction. But we also value intellectual curiosity, right? The desire to learn new things. Doesn't that stimulate the same thing? And how should smart people deal with their addictive desire to learn something new if there is too much to learn and it's coming at them too quickly? Well, I think part of being a creator or being an intellectual or a scholar or an artist or a scientist, part of all of that is using the information that we gather towards a purpose. It's not that we just willy-nilly take in every bit of information that comes our way and then hope that something good will come from it, right? The painter thinks, is there some shape or color that's in my environment that I can use for this painting? The, the songwriter thinks, so is there a phrase that's in the news or that somebody spoke to me in a coffee shop that I can turn into a song? The scientist doesn't evaluate every single scientific paper. Hopefully, on the other extreme, the scientist doesn't evaluate only those within a narrow domain, but will reach a little broadly. But there has to be some sculpting of the input and some purpose to it. Otherwise, it becomes random noise. So goal setting and creating frameworks within which to decide what to pay attention to exactly. and what not to. I mean, we, I think we all know people who are super smart but really scattered, and they end up getting nothing done. And then you've got people who are maybe less smart and maybe no less, but are creating great things. Well, speaking of taking in random bits of possibly conflicting information, uh, let us move on to the main part of the show in which our producers have chosen interview clips for us to listen to. They could be on any subject and they're a total surprise to me too. Are we ready? Yeah. All right. So this one seems to be Norman Lear talking about how to live a good life, and he's 92 years old, so he probably has some, some wisdom on that subject. I would advise anyone, including myself, that any moment you understand your life is good, then everything that led up to it was worthwhile. And the reason I say that is not that I haven't made mistakes, I've made some glorious mistakes, and I've suffered in a life for those mistakes. But I'm sitting here talking to you this morning. I am too concerned with the problems that envelop us everywhere. But in my personal world, I couldn't be happier. I have six kids. They delight me thoroughly. Our family get-togethers are the best thing going in my life. So I figure if I can say that at this moment, feel that at this moment, I wouldn't change anything that got me here. Two of the most important words, I think, are over and next. When something is over, it is over, and we're all on to next. And the hammock in the middle between those two words is what I think is meant by truly living in the moment. So uh, I think being invested in next and not the past is best. I think an interesting thing about his whole approaches, I mean, he's 92 years old, and for many people, there are neurochemicals that get released during aging 
that really make us more comfortable in our own skins and make us happier, really. We don't know why this happens, but one of the wonderful things about aging is that not everybody, but many older people feel content, satisfied, happy, and they feel their lives were good. And they might not have felt that way 30 or 40 years earlier when the chemical balance was different. That's very interesting because I would have, not knowing the neuroscience of that, I would have thought the reason people felt content is because they'd arrived at a point where they're not actively working towards something new. Well, I think, Jason, there's another part of this, which is that when you're 15 and 16, 20, 25, you, you're really worried about how you're going to fit in, how you're going to fit into the world. Is there going to be a place for me in the world? Will I have happiness? Will I raise a family? And if I don't, will I still be fulfilled? Will I have meaningful work? Will people value me? Am I weird? I think everybody goes through this at least 10-year period where you worry that there might be something wrong with you. It hasn't come out yet, but it might in <laughs> right. some particularly public and social way, and then you'll be humiliated, and what are you going to do? Or, you know, by the time you reach 92, Norman Lear's age, certainly, I mean, even earlier, by the time you reach 60, you know, if, if you're still alive and, you know, you're doing okay, you must be okay. I, I, I'm all right. I don't need to be nervous anymore. I do fit in. I've found my place. Right. So that's sort of the psychological explanation, and then you're saying there's also a neurochemical explanation. I guess the two may be related in some way, right? Well, I think of them as different ways of describing the same thing, okay. because our, what we experience influences the neurochemicals that are released. They, in turn, influence how we interpret experience, so it's, it's just two different ways of talking about it. I don't see an artificial distinction between psychology and neuroscience anymore. Okay. Well, I get what he's saying in terms of regrets not being that valuable, and I totally agree with that, and I would imagine that happy people don't have a lot of regrets. At the same time, different minds work differently, I guess, and I feel like I'm aware of intellectuals and writers and thinkers Freud being maybe a decent example, who may have spent their entire life, in a sense, chewing the cud of a single idea or several ideas deeper and deeper and deeper, and where this notion chewing of Chewing the cud so they could make the ideas move. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, that, that that is their way of getting more deeply into what they know, who, you know, and that they might reject this notion of sort of letting go. Right. I agree with you. I think there are different ways that different people pursue their interests, and some of them just tenaciously hold on to something. I mean, look at, look at Van Gogh's irises. He didn't paint them once. He painted them over and over again. There must have been something that he couldn't let go of. And Paul Simon has talked about this. Now, here's a songwriter. You interviewed him, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Two or three times. Here's a songwriter who I think, as great as his output has been, I think in the last 10 years he's gotten even better. Some of his best work has been the most recent work, which unfortunately hasn't been as widely heard, but the quality of it is tremendous. And he talks about there being this toolkit that artists have, this idea of things they keep reaching for, and in his case there are particular sounds or combinations of sounds that he keeps trying to get to with his music. And each attempt doesn't quite get there, so he tries again and again and again. Thank goodness. But I don't think that's living in the past, and I don't think it's regretting that he didn't get there before. It's a fine line. It's sort of like being drawn in a kind of ineffable direction. There's something you're trying to get at, and it keeps drawing you forward because you never completely get there. 
I mean, somebody could say about you that the reason you keep doing interviews is because you haven't gotten the answer you wanted yet. <laughs> <laughs> that is possible, yeah. Okay, I think on that note, maybe we, we are, we're ready to move to the next video. Okay. You want to move on? Okay. So this one is Kabir Segal. He is a former Wall Street trader and a writer. I've not seen this video, but it's called Wall Street's Biggest Problem Could Be High Testosterone. It is true that on Wall Street and among traders, there's a lot of uh, endorphins produced. In fact, they've studied traders in the London stock market, and they found that, sure enough, those who take on significant risks may have increased levels of testosterone. So it's not just in Wall Street, it's also when you're in a casino, right? Those who have certain chemicals are more likely to take certain financial decisions. So people have different attitudes towards risk, and it falls along a continuum. Some people are risk-seeking, some are risk-averse. Some people take great delight in winning. Some people find the losses that come from taking a risk so abhorrent that there's no possible gain. The happiness they gain couldn't possibly compensate for the misery they would have at losing money. And one of the factors that plays into this is a personality factor having to do with how you view your role as an agent in the world. Do you think that your actions actually influence the course of events in your life? Or do you feel like a popcorn in a machine being bounced around and you've got no control? Hmm. And we call the first kind of people internals. They have an internal locus of control. They believe they are responsible to some degree for what happens to them. If I work hard, good things will happen. And then the externals, you know, to them life is a huge mystery run by capricious gods who have an agenda of their own and they won't step under a ladder or walk by a black cat. And if that happens, they'll you know, hide for a week at a time because the world is acting on them in these non-understandable ways. And it's that latter category, the externals, who are more likely to be risk takers. That's the interesting thing. Not in all cases, and we're talking about a continuum, but as a generalization, if somebody who is an external, they believe that they don't really control their own fate, if they're broke, they're more likely to scrape up a little bit of money and gamble. Mm. Because they think, you know, I, I've got a good chance of winning the lottery. I'll spend my last dollar on a million to one shot. It seems unlikely, but what if I'm the one? The internal thinks, you know, I, I've got to work harder. And they respond to failure differently. The external will say, nothing good ever happens to me, or that my boss hated me, it's not my fault. The internal says, I gotta work harder, I gotta learn more, I gotta align myself with a better strategy or with better people, or I gotta go back to school, right? Very different approaches. It's very interesting. I mean, so do people tend to break down cleanly into these two categories? Is there a big continuum? It's a big continuum. There are people at every place along it. And some people will be risk-seeking for financial decisions, but risk-averse for medical decisions. Do those two category distinctions associate in any consistent way with what we would think of as success or productivity, like that externals are more or less successful, or is it just all over the map? Well, I think that in reality, there is a certain amount of luck in many successes. Hmm. So Eric Clapton talked about this. He's the first to admit that he's not the best guitar player in England and that you can go to any bar on any night and probably find somebody who is technically as good as he is. Right. 
but he had a number of doors open for him, and one of his great secrets was that when the success came, he knew what to do with it and how to keep it going and how to feed it. But I think in a variety of domains, whether you're talking business or startups or science, arts, even in social relationships, there's a certain minimum amount of ability you have to have. Right. After that, it's luck. I'm keenly aware of this, now having had three consecutive best-selling books I know that my books aren't better than other people's books. Every time I go to a bookstore, I see hundreds, thousands of great books. I know that I have a good publicist. I've got a good publisher. I know that we've been very careful about how and when we release the books. We've been careful on the editing. We never released a book that went through fewer than 50 edits. Wow. So there was a lot of work. But 50, I know that- 50 like full edits? Five zero, like the yes. Entire, full yeah. edits all the way through. Wow. But. I know that that doesn't guarantee success. There's been a certain amount of luck. Right. Well, but all that means is that I keep working harder to increase the chances that when luck comes, I'll be ready. So going back to what Kabir Segal was saying about testosterone and, and Wall Street, like he seemed to be saying that testosterone makes you worse at evaluating your own irrationality, like you at noticing your own cognitive biases, and yet. High testosterone levels seem to be a common trait among Wall Street traders. What do you make of that? That seems like a disastrous situation for the economy. So testosterone is a very complicated hormone. Okay. Although we associate it with sexual responsiveness, it has a number of other functions, including helping to maintain a healthy immune system. If your testosterone is low, it won't signal the production of T cells and natural killer cells. Mm. It's important for mental alertness. Uh, women have testosterone too. And the brain isn't just a sack of chemicals. It's not like you know more testosterone goes equally to at different parts of the brain. There, the receptors in different parts of the brain respond differently to the various chemicals we have up there. And we're just at the infancy of understanding the neurochemistry of thought. So I'm willing to believe that it's associated with increased risk taking. Right. As a correlation, I'm even willing to believe, although I don't, haven't seen the evidence myself, that giving somebody external testosterone will make them more risk-seeking in some areas of behavior. But I suspect in the next 10 years, the story is going to become much more marvelously nuanced and complex, and that there are other chemicals, and it may be that the increase of testosterone lowers the increase of progesterone and epinephrine and other things, and it's a very tightly interrelated system. And so some of the effects we may see may not be due to testosterone per se. Right. They may be secondary effects. This made me wonder whether you have any thoughts about a little knowledge being a dangerous thing within neuroscience, the fact that we are understanding more and more about the brain, how it functions, what its chemical composition is, et cetera. And at the same time, it's releasing little bits of knowledge out into the marketplace that are resulting in things like people getting their doctors to prescribe testosterone for them. You know, what do you think so about that? So they can that? make a killing in the stock market. I exactly. I mean, what Doc, do you think? I'm behind in my boat payment. Can you give me a testosterone patch? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it kind of a Pandora's box. It's a complicated question, but you know, Jason, I come back to a core value of mine, which is that science should be free. It belongs to the public. It shouldn't be owned by anybody. I, notwithstanding that, you know, in the capitalist system, we need to be able to patent the results of some scientific research so that the companies will invest in medications and things like that. But in general, I think scientific knowledge should be free. It should be disseminated widely. And people like me, professional educators, need to do a better job 
of training people how to use that information and not to jump to conclusions. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's see what, what they have for us next. The internet connects people, but who leads them? And this is Jim Gilliam, who I know to be an author and a kind of internet evangelist. Mm -hmm. There was a study done a few years ago by Pew Research. Uh, like 2011, they went and they surveyed a whole bunch of different groups online. Everything from political parties to unions and fantasy sports leagues. They asked them a bunch of questions and one of the questions was, why do you leave a group? And the number one reason by far, 54% of people said that the reason they leave a group is because of a lack of leadership. So what I believe is happening is that the internet is connecting everybody at a scale that's just unprecedented. I mean, everybody knows that. If you think about it, right, every hugely successful technology has fundamentally connected people. Planes, cars, the phone, television, even the wheel, right? So the internet is just this amazing version of all of that. And so all these people are connecting, but then because of a lack of leadership, all of that energy is going to waste. So if we can somehow connect all of the potential and power of an individual's passion and sort of what it is that they are meant to create with all of that latent energy in communities that need leadership, we connect those two things together. That's how we can sort of dramatically increase the impact of humans and our ability to create things that were sort of never possible before. This runs a little contrary to the way that I tend to think about the internet. Like I tend to think of it as a distributed system, something like a brain, in which all of these little inputs are coming together and then it has emergent properties, like communities arise on the internet, Wikipedia, whatever. I don't tend to think of it as needing a leader. I think that parts of the internet need a leader, just like parts of society need a leader. I don't need a leader in my community to help me find other dog owners that I enjoy meeting at the park. I mean, it just sort of happens. And we don't have an organization for it, we just, we show up at the dog park. Right. Montreal, where I've lived for 15 years, has the largest spontaneous gathering in North America in that every Sunday, thousands of people converge in a particular part of Mount Royal Park and form a drum circle. Oh, wow. It's not advertised anywhere. Oh, wow. It's never been arranged or set up. But there are other things in the community that do need leaders. I, sure. I need somebody to manage how we're gonna deal with drunk drivers. I don't think we should all be dealing with it one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> right. You know, I get hit by a drunk driver, I don't have the authority to decide what's gonna happen to him. That right. wouldn't be right. I, I'm gonna be stressed out, cortisol's gonna be clouding my judgment. I need to not punch him in the nose, and maybe that would help, but <laughs> maybe not. I mean, you, you know, so. We need police, we need legal regulation, that kind of leadership. You know, it's, it's a really fascinating entry into the topic of what is the role of government or if you want to not use the charged word of government, what is the role of authority or oversight in different kinds of spontaneous organizations and, and living arrangements. So my view is that one of the greatest developments in human history came about a few thousand years ago in the Old Testament when whoever it was that wrote it instructed <laughs> whoever it was that was going to read it, you need to set up a system of courts so the powerful won't be able to exploit or take advantage of the non-powerful. Right. And there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that you know in front of a judge, the rich are the same as the poor. 
And I think that's one of the defining features of civilization. And you can extend that, you know, there's another biblical passage, don't put an obstruction in front of a blind man. And I think we're to take this metaphorically. There are people out there who are gullible and easily taken in by snake oil salesmen mm -hmm. and people who are unscrupulous, or people who are scrupulous but just happen to believe the wrong things. I'm sure there are people peddling medicines that they think will cure cancer, right. but that we're almost absolutely sure will not. And so there's a role there for protecting us from ourselves. We don't want that role to become too intrusive. We like our freedom. And I think all of the arguments we have in the political sphere, a great majority of them can be boiled down to where it is that we're going to draw the line right. about how much intrusion these so-called authorities can have and how much are we allowed to decide for ourselves. This applies to gun control, uh, medical regulations, medical care, racism, hate speech, all the big flashpoint political issues, I think. And on the internet, the thing that bugs me most is that Wikipedia is unregulated because it's become the de facto source of information. Right. And yet, according to Lawrence Sanger and uh, Jimmy Wales, the site was founded on the principle that experts do not carry any more weight there than non-experts. And I've seen many, many entries on important topics, you know, like how to perform brain surgery, where it became evident that somebody who knew nothing about the topic and had no training, but who had more time on his hands than an actual neurosurgeon, would just keep reverting edits the way he wanted. But the site has gotten too big for there to be any hmm. consistent, meaningful oversight of every page. That's really interesting because Wikipedia is often held up by internet evangelists and boosters as one of, you know, as a perfect example of how well things can work when things are left unregulated and the people are allowed to come together in a spontaneous gathering and create something. The, you know, my understanding was that there was some obscure system of editing that went on to try to prevent the sort of thing you're talking about, but, but if errors well, it's, are rife... It's, it's, the idea is that if, if anybody wants to, they can edit the page. And right. you know, on the other hand, Wikipedia is fantastic. It's one of the greatest things in the last hundred years. Anything you want to know is there, and studies have shown overall it's more accurate and up-to-date than you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. It was that way even 10 years ago. It's just that from moment to moment it can change, and you don't know whether the moment you're looking at it is the moment when it just changed to being wrong. Right. I don't want to see an internet police, but I would like to see the internet itself, and, and this is already starting to happen, create sites that are good go-to sites. You know, Yelp has kind of become this. Mm -hmm. Google's and Bing's rank orderings have kind of become this. But, mm -hmm. you know, it, it'd be nice to see over the next few years sites that tell you, well, no, this timeshare thing over here is a bad deal or uh, this product really doesn't work, and the hundred testimonials are all cousins of the person who's trying to make money off of it. Right. Or a Wikipedia alert page. This page that you're looking at has just been edited in the last hour by somebody who hasn't edited it before, and you can learn more about them here, or, or something like that. Yeah, one of the things I really love on the internet is uh, Snopes.com. Yes. Yeah, yeah, which debunks yeah. Facebook myths and right. things like right. everyone's been sharing recently that, 
you know, if I post this on my page, Facebook can't use my personal information right. or whatever, which is, of course, not true. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so correctives out there to some of the risks that we face online. Daniel Levitin, it has been wonderful chatting with you about this variety of subjects. Thank you so much for being on Think Again. Thank you, Jason. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. If you're a fan of the show and would like it to continue indefinitely, or at least until our sun goes supernova, please rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. I wanted to let you know that we made iTunes list of best of 2015 podcasts. Thanks in very large part to all of you out there who have been listening and rating and reviewing us. So thank you so much for that. We're going to take next week off for New Year's. No show next week. Uh, but we'll be back on January 9th with celebrated playwright Sir David Hare. See you then.